Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a crowd podcast. It's years after his death, and people are campaigning for a blue plaque to be stuck on one of his old haunts. You know the sort, the ones that commemorate famous people, artists, scientists, musicians, anyone who made a big splash. And you know what one of the blue plaque people said? Bad behaviour and overdosing on various substances isn't a sufficient qualification. Apparently, not everyone remembers Keith Moons, the greatest rock drummer who ever lived. He dies in 78, but 40 years later, and people still think he was just some nutcase who happened to play the drums. Moon the Loon, that's the nickname. The bloke who drove a Rolls Royce into a swimming pool, who liked blowing up toilets and trashing hotel rooms who once took a monkey tranquilizer that knocked him out for 24 hours, who ended up lonely and depressed and dead of an overdose in his early 30s. A rock and roll cliche. The rock and roll cliche. Oh, bloody shame. But can you blame them? Moon's life and death is one of pop music's great cautionary tales. It's textbook stuff. A troubled kid who gets famous and rich too young. Whose need for love and attention turns downright dangerous. Whose life becomes one big fantasy on and off the stage. The funniest man alive, but the saddest too. A man who becomes so grotesque that people forget what a genius he is, or was, before the drink and drugs and darkness reduce him to a husk. Here's a few things to chew on before we wade further into the chaos. Is Moon proof that you can't have genius without madness, or at least a hint of it? Is the golden age of rock really so golden when its gods die so young? How can so great a talent become so overblown, so cartoonish, that men handing out blue plaques don't know why he's loved and idolised in the first place? Could Keith Moon happen now? If not, should we be thankful? Or does that just mean the world's a more puritanical, less colourful place? This is Death of a Rockstar, Keith Moon. Before things get crazy, let's see if we can find some clues in his childhood. Born in 1946, Moon grows up just around the corner from Wembley Stadium. He loves explosives, pranks and hitting things with sticks. Back then, he's called hyperactive. Nowadays, he'd probably be diagnosed with a disorder and treated. His high school art teacher describes Moon as idiotic. His music teacher says Moon has great ability, but tends to show off. Between the two of them, 
they've pretty much got it nailed. Moon leaves school when he's 14, gets himself a job as a radio repairman and buys his first drum kit. His big hero is jazz drummer Gene Krupa. Krupa's got skills. He's a great technician, an even greater showman. But Moon has a style all his own. Phil's popping up in unexpected places, cymbal crashes galore. Remember what his music teacher said about showing off? When Moon auditions to join The Who, he almost demolishes the kit. The band's bass player is John Entwistle. He's not sure about this new kid, thinks his timekeeping's inconsistent, that he slows down and speeds up depending on his mood. Some critics call Moon sloppy, but only because they think rock drummers are supposed to play a certain way. Moon doesn't want to be a human metronome, so he rips up the rulebook. Almost hidden behind his kit, he's on his own journey, in his own world. But somehow, it works. Somehow, he manages to take the others with him, to hold it all together. The Who? They're physical, threatening. There's lead singer Roger Daltrey, with his hard man swagger, using his microphone cable as a whip. Pete Townsend, snarling and slashing at his guitar. Moon, a maniac, going at his kit as if he wants to kill it. Then there's Townsend's lyrics, echoing the anger, fear and frustration of so many kids in 1960s Britain. Confused and misunderstood, all sorts of new freedoms, no idea what to do with them. The Who's first big hit is My Generation, comes out in 65. You know it, basically punk over a decade early. There's the famous line, I hope I die before I get old. There's all that machine gun stuttering. There's that bit where you think Daltrey is gonna tell the old folks where to go. It gets to number two in the UK charts, but back in the 60s, there's a lot of talent about. You need more than good tunes to stand out. The Who get a reputation for vandalism. Townsend smashing up his guitar, Moon kicking over his kit and letting off smoke bombs. But Moon can't separate life from art. Here's where the real madness is about to start. Okay, we need to take a quick ad break, but strap yourselves in, because this story is about to get even wilder. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. Hello, Rockstar listeners. It is Tom here. Now, I'm one of the writers on the show and was behind quite a few of the episodes, ones like George Michael, John Lennon, Donny Hathaway and Otis Redding. I wanted to tell you quickly about DistroKid, who we've partnered with to provide Rockstar listeners with a special deal that we think you will love. Are you a musician and wondering how you can get more bang for your buck with your music? Well, get yourself on DistroKid. That's D-I-S-T-R-O-K-I-D. DistroKid is revolutionising the music business. It's the easiest way for musicians to get music onto places like Spotify, Apple, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube. Well, you name it, they can get it there. You get unlimited uploads. You'll enjoy more features than any other music distributor. And you'll get to keep 100% of your earnings. Here are just some of the things that it lets you do. Okay, easily pay your collaborators with a special feature called splits. Send huge files to anyone with their InstaShare feature. Make mini videos to use on your socials. And stop sneaky thieves stealing your music and using it without your permission with their DistroLock feature. There's also an app where you can see your DistroKid account in one place. Check your Apple and Spotify stats and withdraw earnings. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So head to the Apple Store or Google Play to download it. And here is the best bit. They're offering you guys a special deal. Just go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash death of a rockstar to get 30% off your first year. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash death of a rockstar for 30% off your first year. Welcome back to Death of a Rockstar, the story of Keith Moon. Now, where was I? Moon's turning 21 during The Who's first US tour, and his birthday party? It's absolute bedlam. There's a mass food fight. Fire extinguishers get set off, a piano's destroyed, the police are called, and guns are drawn. Legend has it Moon reverses a Rolls-Royce into the hotel's swimming pool. Others say it's a Lincoln Continental. His bandmates say it never happened. Doesn't really matter because Moon's already a one-man myth. Whatever's made up, you know, Moon has actually done way, way worse. That's what makes the lies stick. When The Who make their US TV debut, Moon loads his bass drum with explosives and blows up the stage. Cameras and monitors are destroyed. Moon ends up with a piece of symbol in his arm. Townsend's hair is singed and the elderly actress Betty Davis, another guest, faints. Or so they say. No one's telling Moon to keep a lid on things. This is the 60s when this sort of stuff's good for business, when the madness is acting sensible. 
Moon really does blow up toilets with sticks of dynamite. It's not a one-off. You might even call it a hobby. He smashes up countless hotel rooms, throws countless TVs through countless windows. In Canada, he finds an axe and chops up all the furniture. When the hotel manager asks him what he's doing, Moon says, just trying to stay out of trouble, dear boy. Friends insist Moon's articulate, intelligent, far brighter than his school grades. He's a big fan of the goons, the surrealist comedy trio. Some of his shtick sounds just as clever and just as funny. He likes dressing up as a vicar and swearing at old ladies. And he drives his Rolls Royce around, making public service announcements. A favourite is warning locals the government plans to relocate the country's entire immigrant population to their village. Moon's been necking amphetamine since his early days in the Who, and prescription drugs by the fistful too. When he mixes them with alcohol, he's terrifying, utterly uncontrollable, a speeding train you can't stop. Every time Moon walks into the room, he has to be the maddest man in it, and there's always the chance that something terrible's about to happen. You might call his humour challenging, like the time he persuades Townsend to eat some exotic flowers and Townsend almost chokes to death. Or the morning after Mick and Bianca Jagger's wedding, when Moon abseils through their hotel window naked, apart from a pair of comedy glasses and some knickers on his head. Oh, and that story about the monkey tranquilizer, it might have been a rhinoceros tranquilizer. Or it might have been both. Here we are again, losing sight of what made Moon great. To be fair, it's easy to do. This is the man who pretty much invents the stereotype of the rock and roll reprobate. But for six or seven years, Moon's also the man every other rock drummer wants to be. Actually, that's never stopped being the case. You could say no band's ever been so defined by its drummer before or since. Quite a statement when you consider Townsend's muscular tunes, his rebel lyrics. Daltrey's roar and the messianic stage presence, Entwistle's virtuoso bass playing. But there's a reason Moon thought he should have been at the front of the stage, with Daltrey hidden out back. Without Moon's wild crashing and bashing, his quirkiness, his freedom, the Who's hat-trick of classic albums between 1969 and 1973 would be hollow, flat. Instead, you can't forget Tommy, Who's Next, and Quadrophenia. Here's another way of gauging it. Led Zeppelin's John Bonham's as gifted as Moon and almost as unhinged. He likes to watch Keith perform in the recording studio. Ringo Starr and Charlie Watts are huge fans. So's the legendary jazz drummer Buddy Rich. But all that fast living starting to catch up with Moon, diminishing him as a man and a drummer. Not exactly surprising. Here's how Moon described his daily routine to his doctor. Get up about six in the morning, bangers and eggs, bottle of Dom Perignon, half a bottle of brandy, couple of downers. Nice nap from 10 to five. Get up, couple of speed pills, some brandy, a little champagne and go out on the town. Then we boogie. We'll wrap it up about four. Moon's enormous hunger for drink and drugs has always been a problem for other people. But in the early 70s, it becomes a serious problem for Moon. During a US gig, he passes out behind his kit, 
Roadies drag him off the stage while his bandmates play on. Townsend has to get a drummer out the crowd so they can finish the set. It's not the only time it happens. There are punch-ups with his bandmates in the studio. Friends start to desert him. Moon doesn't have any interests or hobbies other than getting out of his mind. He doesn't even have a drum kit at home, let alone practice. He accidentally runs over his own driver, trying to escape from a gang of skinheads, and kills him. He flirts with bankruptcy. Too many trashed hotel rooms, blown up toilets and cars. Not all of them fast. He's got a milk float in his garage. Domesticated, he's like an escaped tiger. He pops out for a pint of milk and doesn't come back for four days. He's also insanely jealous. He hits his wife. He has no clue how to be a father because he's still a child. His wife leaves him. She takes their daughter with her and Moon's devastated, which only makes things worse. Dates don't really matter. All you need to know is this. For the last five years of his life, Moon is one big mess. One man he does make friends with is Oliver Reed, the actor, the boozer. When Moon first visits his home, Reed stands on his lawn and fires at Moon's helicopter with a shotgun. Reed's already got a rep as a hellraiser, but he says Moon shows him the way to insanity. Moon finds a new girlfriend and moves to LA. They live in some beautiful homes. They all get wrecked. Moon fancies himself as a Hollywood actor, but he doesn't have the discipline. He turns up to auditions stoned and drunk. No director in their right mind will work with him. So he rots away in his Malibu beach house, surrounded by hangers-on, not a real friend in sight. Getting fat, drinking champagne and brandy for breakfast, popping pills all day, listening to the Beach Boys on loop, ignoring phone calls and knocks on his bedroom door. Those big brown eyes, once so twinkly and mischievous, now deep black pools of sadness. On the Who's US tour in 76, he passes out on stage in Boston. Racked with guilt, he destroys his hotel room, cuts himself, and almost bleeds to death. His bandmates think about sacking him, but they're worried the rejection will tip him over the edge. A few months later, Moon spends eight days in hospital in Miami. He's back for the final gig in Toronto. It's his last public show. Moon's a shambles during the recording of The Who's next album, Who Are You? Townsend says there'll be no tour unless he cleans up his act. He's not the drummer he used to be. He can barely raise his arms, let alone raise hell. Go at his kit as if he wants to kill it. He's still on his own journey, but he's going nowhere good. And he's heading there far too fast. In the summer of 78, him and his girlfriend Annette move back to the UK. The singer-songwriter Harry Nielsen lends them his home in Mayfair. Nielsen's not sure it's a good idea, thinks the place is cursed. Cass Elliot from the Mamas and the Papas died there four years earlier. She was only 32. By now, most people think Moon's a lost cause. Daltrey described his old mate as a box of fireworks. You never know which Moon you're going to get, the loving, funny version or the bitter, spiteful one. It could quite easily blow up in your face, which is why almost everyone's keeping their distance. 
Moon phones Daltrey at all hours, usually in tears. He's desperate to get sober, knows he's letting down his bandmates. A doctor prescribes a sedative to help with Moon's withdrawal symptoms. These pills are dangerous when you mix them with alcohol. But the doctor doesn't know about Moon's lifestyle, doesn't know he's been guzzling pills by the fistful since he was in his teens. On the 6th of September 1978, Moon and Annette go to a party thrown by Paul McCartney. Moon drinks a couple of glasses of champagne and snorts some cocaine. Apart from that, he's almost sober, doesn't smash anything up, doesn't blow up any toilets. It looks like the treatment's working. Afterwards, Moon and Annette hit a film premiere in Leicester Square, but duck out early. Back at the flat in Mayfair, Annette cooks Moon some lamb cutlets. Moon takes some sedatives and hits the sack at four in the morning. Moon's awake a few hours later, demanding more food. Then he takes more sedatives and falls back to sleep. Just before four in the afternoon, Annette finds Moon lying on his front, with one arm hanging over the side of the bed. She can't hear him breathing. An ambulance rushes Moon to hospital, but he's pronounced dead just before six. There's 26 undigested sedative pills in his stomach. Six had been enough to kill him. It's Townsend who writes the lyric, I hope I die before I get old. It's Daltrey who sings it. Nobody's surprised it's Moon who went and did it. At the funeral, Daltrey half expects Moon to leap from the coffin, just another one of his sick jokes. The only sick jokes? Moon's gone at 32. That the world's greatest rock drummer, one of its most vibrant spirits, dies such a seedy, lonely death. A man who brought so much happiness, shriveled to a shell, feeling unloved, guilty, desperately depressed. The Who play on, but they're never the same band. Minus Moon, they're a more reliable outfit, no doubt about that. But the magic's gone. Moon's replacement is former Small Faces drummer Kenny Jones. Townsend constantly berates Jones for minor mistakes, but really, he's berating him for not being Moon. Meanwhile, Moon's bandmates try to rehabilitate his character, let people know that he wasn't just a madman, that he was engaging, caring, a complex soul with the wildest of imaginations, that his all-consuming need to impress stemmed from his desperation to be loved. But they're fighting a losing battle. As the years go by, the media turns Moon into a clown. All anyone wants to talk about is the madness, the debauchery, the vandalised hotel rooms and exploded toilets, the truths and myths. Maybe you can understand it, in some ways. Moon lived the kind of life that's no longer possible. He was 70s rock in one small package, out of control, self-destructive, and dangerous to know. He makes other hellraisers like Ozzy Osbourne, John Bonham, look like choir boys. Before the tabloids became celebrity-obsessed, before the internet, social media and all-seeing camera phones ruled out that kind of behaviour, young people, at least those who missed the lad culture boom of the 90s, might wonder how he got away with it. What kind of society allowed it? Why didn't anyone help him? They don't find much of it clever, 
or funny. You can see where they're coming from. Moon's story is one of neglect, of an insecure young man with undiagnosed disorders who wasn't helped soon enough, of an industry that's encouraged his excesses, wanted him that way, because it thrilled people, helped sell more records, made more money. The upshot being, Moon's genius gets forgotten. That ability to conjure musical magic from what looks like vandalism. Moon's myth swallows him whole, so that all people know is Moon the Loon, famous for his bad behaviour and overdosing on all sorts of substances, instead of being the man who crashed and bashed better than anyone, before or since. This episode of Death of a Rockstar was written by Ben Durs and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Crawford Blair. If you enjoyed this podcast, we've got a favour to ask. Leave us a nice review in your podcast app. We'd really appreciate it. For research, we watched the documentary Amazing Journey, The Story of the Who. We also read articles in the following publications. The Telegraph, The Mirror, The Independent, The Daily Mail, The Guardian, GQ, Modern Drummer, Far Out, Melody Maker, The NME, The New Yorker, Rockstellar, Rolling Stone, Louder Sound and Ultimate Classic Rock. The music we used is from our partner's BMG Production Music. But if you want to hear some Keith, try My Generation and listen to him absolutely kill his kit. Then try Won't Get Fooled Again if you want a taste of Moon's musical virtuosity. And so sad about us if you want some early, joyous who. Or if you'd like another podcast to listen to, try our other episode about Sid Vicious. Just search for Death of a Rockstar Sid Vicious and it should pop up. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. The Helping Friendly Podcast explores the music and fan experience of fish through interviews and deep dives on shows and tours. For more than 10 years, we've created insightful and fun discussions about our favorite band, and with the help of our guests and thematic series, we're still discovering new angles of appreciation for fish. And when the band is on tour, we provide a review of every show the following day. As one of our listeners said, any fish fans that enjoy meandering conversations and incredible insight on new and old fish shows, this is for you. Highly recommend. It's not just about the band and the shows, it's about the journey getting there. Throughout 2024, we're going to be running down the top 25 fish tours of all time, and that'll be interspersed with show reviews and regular episodes. Join us and check out the Helping Friendly Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.